We started off by talking about the purpose of mortification in the Christian life and also the place. All right, the purpose, we talked about that big end, the big idea, the main mission, um, the context and the objective, right? To be like Christ, particularly to be like Christ in love. And we never want to forget that. We also talked about the place of mortification. And the main thing that I want you to see is that Mortification really is the whole of the Christian life viewed from that perspective of the struggle against the flesh. So it's inescapable, and it's something that that we just have to deal with until our death. In the second session, we talked about um, a little bit further about video games, and we talked about cheating. We talked about um, being invincible or immortal, Uh, the, the fact that God definitely has us in his hand and Uh, Though we fall, we will rise again. Christ intercedes for us. He's our advocate. And so we can have confidence to go in against the flesh, um, but not that that kind of overconfidence or that foolish confidence that tempts God. And we talked a lot about the strategy, the main strategy of deceit that the flesh uses. And I closed um, the book, The Enemy Within, uh, the last section, with some, uh, well, well, the name of it was Nailing the Lid on Sin's Coffin, and about really putting, how do you, how do you put the flesh to death, and, and gave some of uh, the, the weapons that we have. And then later, I read another book of John Owens called The Glory of Christ, which is really an extended, an amazing extended meditation on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the, the interesting thing that I found there is that really that was one of the most powerful to, uh, not tools, but weapons that we have against the flesh. In fact, the, I think the basic premise of Owen was that you become what you worship. And by reflecting on Christ and meditating on him and what he's like and, and knowing him more deeply we are then transformed into his image. And remember, that's the end of mortification, right? That's the, per- the end of everything. That's what we're supposed to be. So um, this is going to sound like a self-serving plug, and it is. But I took that material from The Glory of Christ, and I wrote this other book called Through the Looking Glass. And, that, and that's what it is, is, is Owen helped me to more deeply and richly meditate on who Jesus is and, and, and to see how beautiful he is in his glory and so it was a much more fun book to write. And, and uh, uh, anyway, so there that is. If, uh, it would be better, of course, if you could read Owen. He, he just goes on and on and um, uh, beautiful, beautiful book. But if you can't read Owen, you can, you can read mine. Now, in our last hour together, I want to talk about another weapon against the, uh, the enemy within and uh, a weapon that I didn't really emphasize in the book, and, but it's one that's become more important to me over the last few years. And, and I think I see that it is the joy of mortification, if I can even use that kind of a phrase, the joy of mortification. Let's go to the next slide. Um, have you seen this movie? Has anyone seen this movie? Man on Fire? All right. Um, If you haven't seen this movie, by the time I get through today, I'm going to give all the spoilers and everything. So you won't need to. So I'm going to save you some money. 
but I need to I need to talk a little bit about this movie. It um, it really struck me as relating very much to to the struggle against sin in one per- particular way. So in this movie, Denzel Washington plays this character named Creasy, who I think he's some kind of former CIA guy. He's, he's essentially he's a trained assassin. Um, but interestingly, he was reared as a Christian and appears to have the scriptures memorized. Uh, and, and, and so that's in his background. But at this point in his life, he's really quite a loser and he's he's despairing of life. Um, really doesn't have any purpose in his life and just kind of wandering around. And a friend of his um, named Rayburn brings him to Mexico City and persuades him to become the bodyguard of this precocious little girl named Pita. Uh, she's an American. Uh, I think one of her parents is Mexican and one is uh, a U.S. citizen. And, and uh, this little 10-year-old or so girl uh, he is supposed to look after. Well, for some reason, Creasy, uh, maybe just something to do, he decides that he will, he will do that. <clears throat> now, he, as he meets this girl, she is very engaging. She tries to befriend him. She's constantly talking to him and trying to draw him out and to get into his world, and he really resists that. And at one point, he really shuts her down, tells her he doesn't want to be her friend. Yet, she continues to be persistent. Well, in the meantime, we see Creasy when he goes to his room at night, when he's by himself, uh, he has a bottle, or several bottles probably, of Jack Daniels. And he just drinks himself senseless night after night. There's just really no purpose in his life. And then at one point, he actually uh, takes a bullet, loads his gun, puts his gun to his head, and he fires. But, for some reason, the gun misfires. And he's a little bit confused by this. And I think sort of his latent Christianity probably at work in him makes him wonder about some kind of destiny going on here or whatever. He thinks a little bit about it, but he's not changed by this. He's just very intrigued by it. Well, like I said, um, uh, the little girl named Pita continues to try to press into his life and to get to know him and to show affection to him. And at one point, she gives him a gift. She gives him a little toy bear that uh, when he opens it up, he sees inside it is a little medallion. And it's a St. Jude medallion, which is the patron saint of lost causes. Well, whatever that means, he's touched by her affection. And the very next scene in the movie, and this is what really strikes me, the very next scene in the movie is him sitting in his room again. And, and he's sitting there thinking, and he reaches, and he grabs his bottle of Jack Daniels, And he starts unscrewing the top, and he thinks, and he screws it back on, and he sets it down, and he picks up his Bible. Now, why did he do that? Go to the next slide. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, while you're thinking about that, I want to talk about uh, something that I think you're familiar with, but just, just as a way of review, the task relationship orientation scale. Task-oriented people get their jollies out of getting results. They see life as a collection of problems that need to be solved, as disorder that they need to organize. They create prioritized, bulletized to-do lists, 
and then they check those items off as they complete them. They're often fact and results driven. They want the bottom line clearly defined. They often want details organized, and they tend to know exactly where things are. And so, conversely, they're very uncomfortable with things like ambiguity, and they get annoyed by discussions that are not really relevant to the task at hand. They have little patience for digressions, like this digression right now. In extreme cases, if you ask them how they feel about an issue, they will uh, minimize their feelings. They'll be annoyed, by, in fact, that you ask them about their feelings rather than the facts. In fact, just a side light uh, about task-oriented people. If you tell them they need to be people-oriented, that'll become another bullet on, on the list. Relationship-oriented people. I know that because I have a list. Um, relationship-oriented people get their pleasure and get their energy from working with people. They want to make people feel good about what's happening. And they see the world in terms of relationships. They tend not to be interested so much in the facts as the consequences of the facts and how they're going to affect people. They might tend to be disorganized. They easily lose their places in in the current discussion thread. They tend to be very comfortable with ambiguity. And they tend to get annoyed by bulleted, prioritized tasks, lists, and serial sequencing. If you ask them for the facts, they tend to want to get involved in relationships and concepts instead. And they may become annoyed that you asked them about facts and didn't really care how they felt. And, of course, these are gross generalizations. And, and there is this scale. And you can kind of say, you know, where am I along this scale? And we move back and forth across this scale because we're all more or less task and relationship oriented and in different contexts, contexts. Next slide. Well, I want to talk about something that I would call task oriented mortification. Putting sin to death to a task oriented person sounds like a very good task. And the danger that we need to be aware of is reducing mortification to a mere task or a program, or a process, or a regimen. This is very similar to the danger that I spoke of earlier, of making a means, making the means of mortif- mortification as a means into an end in itself. Okay, so that we set out on this course of self-denial, and we look for our sense of accomplishment and satisfaction in our ability to uh, resist that third trip through the buffet bar. So there was a particularly fine group of upstanding citizens in the New Testament. I'm sure you're familiar with them. They were called the Pharisees. Um, They, I believe, were task-oriented people. Uh, They had bulleted to-do lists. They even had nested bulleted to-do lists. They had their self-denial refined to such a level that they tithed on spices uh, like mint and cumin and dill. And... You see on the screen a passage from Matthew 23, uh, a few things that Jesus had to say about these task-oriented Pharisees. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, 
scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the Pharisees and their focus on the outward observance on the law. So I'm not going to belabor it, but I want you to think about how easy it is for us to take a similar approach to mortification. We get so wound up in the details of self-denial and the struggles with fasting and the techniques of self-examination and repentance that we depersonalize our spiritual lives and rob ourselves of all the power against the flesh. In fact, we turn mortification itself, as I said earlier in our first session, into a work of the flesh. So that instead of weakening and killing the flesh, we in fact nurture it until it enslaves us. Next slide. I think this, again, might be what Paul had in mind when he wrote to the Colossians. And we read this passage earlier. And I want you to look in particular uh, at at the, the end of this. These have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I think what Paul is condemning here includes the kind of actions that we would tend to think of as very useful in mortification. He's talking about rules of behavior and practice that deny certain pleasures to the body. And we might wonder why those don't have any power over the flesh. Well, um, before I tell you what I think about this, I want you to look a little bit further down in chapter 3. And remember that these chapter divisions and verses and all that, Paul didn't have those there. This is just a continuing discussion for him in this letter. But skip down to verse 5 of chapter 3. And this is one of those verses where we get the word mortify, where he says, put to death. That is in the King James translated um, mortify, mortify, put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry on account of these. The wrath of God is coming in these. You too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So, you got the idea here that Paul is talking in this context about mortification. And he's contrasting the false mortification that he described at the end of chapter 2 with a true mortification, a real and effective mortification that pleases God. And... And probably one of the first things that you notice about it is that he talks here about root cause rather than symptoms. He gets down to the heart of the matter. He's not talking about making a rule such as don't buy a car that costs more than $30,000. He's going straight to the root of things like covetousness and pride. Did you just buy a car that costs more than $30,000? I saw you laugh there. Maybe that wasn't a good illustration. I'm sorry. Did I embarrass you? (laughs) All right. right. So not making such a rule as that, but getting down to what is it that drives your desire for something like that anyway? So that's obviously crucial. God is the Lord of our hearts and any mortification that fails to touch the depths of our hearts is going to fail completely. But I think there's another angle in this passage 
the part that I skipped over, that is what I want to talk about today when he gets into um, what real effective mortification is. So look at the beginning of the first four verses of Colossians chapter 3. Next slide. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's, a, there's a, just a ton of delicious theology in this passage, which I just don't have time to talk about. Um, and, and did you notice, that again, the allusion to that end that we started with, the beginning with the end, being like Christ uh, when he appears? That, that, and again, that spurs on mortification. But there's something else in here that's interesting to me about mortification. There's a very personal aspect to this, something that is relational in our mortification. Because he's looking to Jesus. This is where mortification begins. Looking, not to a concept, not to an idea, not to an abstraction, not to what does it mean to be respectable, not, not what does it mean to be pious. It's looking at Jesus himself and knowing him. And that's what drives mortification. How does our relationship to Christ enable us to put sin to death? Maybe you're thinking about, well, if we're related to Christ, then we get those things that help us, like the Spirit and and the other blessings that we have, spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And obviously, without the Spirit, there is no mortification of sin. But still, there is something else here, and it is the relationship itself. And that relationship is crucial to mortification. Next slide. We're going to talk about a couple of examples from Scripture that I think will illustrate. And this is my favorite of all. I think this is just one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I love this story about Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Um, I think this is just utterly amazing. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, uh, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Now, I would characterize this as as an overwhelming temptation. I wonder how many men could resist this kind of thing. You know that Joseph was a man who had sexual desire. I don't think he was married at this time, was he? So he probably, you know, here's an opportunity to satisfy a a really powerful desire. If you want to talk about the law of gravity, sexual desire is one of those um, forces within us that influences us. Uh, This woman also was, 
She was not just willing. She was eager to lie with him. She was persistent, even insistent, that he would lie with her. And his ego would have been flattered by the kinds of things that she said to him. And also, of course, she was a very powerful woman, his master's wife. She could pull a few strings for him, make sure and ensure his continued success, or, as she ends up doing, making sure that his success does not continue. So how is it that he is able to resist this temptation? Well, he tells her why, and he tells us why, as we overhear him. He reflects on his relationship to God, on all the great things that God has done that show God's love for him. And as he, as, as he realizes what, uh, how much love God has for him, it's that love that then makes it impossible for him. He is repelled by the thought of offending this God who loves him so much. And so this is my thesis. For mortification to be healthy, it needs to flow from our personal relationship to Christ. It needs to feed on our loyalty and our love to him. It needs to be propelled by his love for us. With Paul, we need to be able to say that the love of Christ constrains us. Consider some of the other saints, I think, who were affected by and influenced by God's love for them in their relationship to mortification. I'm going to talk about a couple of them who actually fell into sin. Next slide. Obviously, David uh, sinned greatly against God. But listen to what he says in his confession. Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, speaking to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Does that ever strike you as odd? Well, what about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? What about Joab and his soldiers that he led into sin who became accomplices in the murder of Uriah by his orders? How is it that he sinned only against God? Well, I think it's because his relationship to God was so close, so tight that he, that he knew God's love so much that when he was struck with his conviction, that that's what overwhelmed him so that the fact that he sinned against God just really put everything else into the background. Because of the intensity of that relationship, he was crushed by the thought of his offense against God. It was very personal and it broke him. Consider Peter. He loved his Lord Jesus so much that he confessed that he was willing to die for him. And remember that he drew a sword and began to defend him. He really did love him. He wasn't lying. And uh, later, of course, in his weakness, he denied that he even knew him. But do you remember what it was that brought him to his senses? You probably remember the rooster crowing. But Luke adds a little detail that I think is crucial. Luke chapter 22 and immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. He didn't weep bitterly because he was frustrated that he had failed in his goals to live up to some kind of level of respectability. 
It wasn't just shame or frustration or a sense of inadequacy or, or spiritual impotence. Jesus looked them in the eye, and it was that relationship that they had, the love that Jesus had for him and that he had for Jesus, and his betrayal of Christ's love for him that broke his heart. This personal relationship lies also behind Paul's call to mortification in Ephesians chapters 4 and 5, where he talks about mortification. There he uses um, some of his favorite images of mortif- or one of his favorite images of mortification, that um, taking off, the, uh, putting off the, uh, the old man, the former manner of life, and then putting on Christ. Uh, he charged them to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created in the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. There's that theme again, likeness of God. Then, in verse 30, in the middle, this is uh, of chapter 4, I believe, in the middle of this discussion of mortification, he admonishes them with what I think is a startling expression. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. I don't know, that just seems like a strange expression to me, very effective, to grieve the Holy Spirit. I think of, of times when I was, um, and maybe you can remember a time when you were a teenager and you did something particularly foolish, something embarrassing and humiliating to your parents. And you remember the look that your parents gave you. Maybe it was anger, maybe it was rage, maybe it was something like that. But sometimes your parents, you see something in their eye. You see how you broke their heart, how much they love you. And, and that does something inside you, and it affects you uh, if you have any humanity at all that affects you. I spent a lot of time and energy over the years trying to figure out whether I loved God enough. And I'm pretty sure I wasted my time. Could I ever, in honesty, get to the point where I say to myself with some smug sense of self-satisfaction, yeah, yeah, I love God enough. Of course not. On the other hand, any time that I've ever spent in reflecting on and marveling at how, how much God loves me, that has always paid off in spades. And I'm sure you feel the same. But I want you to see today that a byproduct of the awareness of God's love for us is the mortification of the flesh. It is something that strengthens our resolve against temptation, as it did for Joseph against Potiphar's wife and her, and her advances. But it's also something that gives us the liberty to repent when we do sin, because it draws us back to God in repentance. Maybe you thought mortification was something that was really painful and excruciating and and you kind of came here for a little self-flagellation or something like that. And uh, something that's mani- maniacally monastic. I knew I would have trouble saying that. But I have come to believe in the last few years that, it, that at least one aspect of our mortification is something that is really the most delightful duty that you can ever imagine. The duty of contemplating how does God love me? How does he love me? Let me count the ways. And I just want to go through now for a little while some of the different ways that we can contemplate the love of Christ. One in song. We sing lots of songs that, that help us to focus on how much God loves us. 
Uh, I'm sure you know these. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me who him to death pursued? Um, uh, And I'm not going to spend much time on this because I know you're familiar with this. But what I wanted you to remember is that as you sing these songs, sing them to each other to remind each other how much God loves us. And also sing them to yourself. And, and reflect on those and don't let it become just uh, something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. God loves me. Yeah, that's right. That's good. God is love. Of course, he loves me. But 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 in your singing of these songs, proclaim his love uh, for you and for your brothers and sisters. Go on to the next slide. Um, something, though, that you may not be as familiar with is the whole idea of telling stories about God. Let me give an illustration. Suppose that um, when you were a kid, you went to a summer camp and there was a lake there and you were out swimming. And let's suppose that you began to drown. You began to flounder and 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 actually you you did drown. But there was a, a camp counselor there named Susan and and she dove into the water and, and she swam to you and she pulled you ashore and, and resuscitated you, brought you back somehow. All right? That's a good thing. Now, it's 30 years later, 20 years later, sometime later. You run into Susan in a coffee shop. And, of course, you're thrilled to see Susan. And what you want to do is you want to sit down and you want to look Susan in the eye and you want to say, Susan, I remember that day. I, not because I saw everything that happened, because I was, I was kind of distracted, but... Uh, I was told how you dove into the water and swam faster than anyone has, has ever swum, swam, 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 uh, how swimmed. Uh, you swam quickly to me and and you and you risked your own life and you pulled me out of the water. And, and all I remember is is coughing up water and looking up into your face and, and the terror that was in your face. And and and, and, I, and I'm just amazed that, that you did this for me. Now, why does Susan tell or why do you tell this story to Susan and what happens when you do? I mean, Susan knows this. She knows this story better than you do, probably, because she was actually conscious while it was happening. And uh, but yet you rehearse this to her. It fills you with a sense of her love for you and, and what she's done for you. It also shows her that you love her and appreciate her love. And if anyone overhears it, it also gives glory to Susan for what she has done. Now, in the Bible, you see that the people of God often tell these kind of stories of what God has done. And they tell them back to God in prayer. Uh, the one that's showing up on the screen is, is the one from Exodus chapter 15, or part of the song that, that the Israelites sang after God had brought them through the Red Sea. And they celebrate the power of God and the deliverance of God. And they're singing this back to God. Well, of course, God knows what happened. We're not trying to give him any kind of information that he doesn't know. But it is a very emotional and relational thing to tell someone uh, about what they have done for you. I love this, um, this song as they sing it. And one thing that I want you to see is the idea of giving detail. Because it's one thing if, if you meet Susan and you say, hey, thanks for saving my life. Yeah, that doesn't do much, you know, or, hey, Jesus, thanks for dying for me. You know, that, that's nice. But um, but no, dwelling on it 
and, and in details that show that you're really thinking about it. And those details themselves will have an effect on you as you think about them. Um, so I want to I read this from Exodus 15, even though you know it. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host. Now he gets into some of the details. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. So we get some similes going here. and We'll have some metaphors. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And then we get a little dialogue. And you wonder how they got this dialogue. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. I will desire, uh, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Just, a, just refreshing to reflect on that. And, and this is what you can do. Um, you can take stories from the Bible and pray them back to God, but you can also look at your own life. Your own, we talk about our testimonies. We talk about giving our testimonies to others, but give your testimony back to God. Tell God your testimony is what I'm saying about what he did. Not necessarily of, not only of your, um, of, of your being born again, of your salvation, but of, of the ways that he's delivered you uh, throughout life. And frequently go back to those and tell those stories back to him. And those will build in you a stronger, deeper sense of his love for you. Next slide. Um, this one is probably a little strange. How does he love me? Let me count the ways. Well... In poetry, and I want to ask you this, and honestly, I need a show of hands here. Has anyone here voluntarily, not because it was assigned in school, has anyone here voluntarily in the last month read a poem other than one that was in the Bible? Anybody? All right, there's one. Oh, okay, two or three. All right, that's a pretty small percentage. Uh, yeah, people don't go in for poetry much these days, and that's to our loss. Because there is a power of expression in great poetry that can stir the heart in ways that prose really very rarely can. Now, I suspect that today I'm not going to convince very many of you to go home and pick up your anthology of English poetry and start reading. But I want to just give you one example of one fantastic poem uh, and, and what it can do for you and help you to see God's love for you. This is by George Herbert. It's at the end of a cycle of poems that he wrote, the only cycle of poems that he wrote, called The Temple. And the context for this poem, uh, as the last poem, is really, he's talking about the last things. In the several poems that are leading up to this, as he's been, his poetry deals with the, the breadth of the Christian life, now he starts talking about death and judgment and hell. So he talks about the last things. And this very final poem of the main section of the temple, uh, entitled Love, is about his soul entering into heaven. And 
he conceives of it as a weary traveler coming to an inn or a tavern or whatever it is at the end of a long journey. And as he approaches, there is a very kind innkeeper, if you will, uh, the host who greets him and welcomes him in and, uh, and listen to what happens. Uh, this host's name is Love, by the way. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty with dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. The soul coming into Christ's presence is feeling, uh, feeling very unworthy, weighed down by sin, even desiring to go where, where he deserved to go for his shame. But, but love pursuing him, unwilling to hear any of his objections and answering every objection that he has. And then finally, he feels, the, the soul feels persuaded and says, okay, I'll come in and I'll serve you. But Christ, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve. And he continues to serve. And he insists that, that he come in and take his place at the banquet. I think this is just an amazing picture of Christ's love and his service of us and to us. And I commend it to you. And uh, there are many other beautiful poems that help us to reflect deeply on and feel deeply the love of God for us. Next slide. Obviously, the scriptures um, give us many different ways to think about God's love for us. And they are his sworn testimony of love to us. And. I'm not, I don't think I'm going to take the time to go through all of these today. And, you know, I've got Deuteronomy 14.21 up there, and you're going to look at that and go, hey, isn't that the one about don't boil a kid in its mother's milk? So you're, that's going to be kind of a mystery to you, and, uh, but, but I'm not going to look at it. So <laughs> well, that, you can talk to me about it later. Um, but I want to start with one example that uh, is an easy one. An easy one, an, an expression of, of Christ's love for us in John 14. Go ahead and, and turn there in your Bibles. First few verses here. Let not your hearts be troubled. Remember the context here. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. 
and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These words strike me as some of the tenderest words and the bravest words ever spoken. Remember, it is that night that Jesus is going to be betrayed in just a few minutes, a few hours, however long it was. And remember that Jesus knew what was coming. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He had his own human fears to dealt with, to deal with. And you know how those fears um, came out in sweat drops of blood in the garden. But in his matchless love, rather than dwelling on his own human fear, he dwells on, he considers the fear of his friends as more important than his own. He had just told them that he was going away and that they could not come where he was going. And even though the disciples were a little slow, they knew that something big was going to happen. They could see see it in his face. So they grew a little bit anxious and they said some kind of strange things. John tells us in chapter 13 that Jesus loved his disciples, that he loved them to the very end, and he showed them the fullness of his love, and he does it here by comforting them in their fear. He says, don't be troubled. Trust God. Trust me. He knows that things are going to get dark for them real fast, that they're going to be faced with some of the greatest temptations of their lives to desert Jesus when the guards come because of their fear for their own necks. He knows that things are going to get even darker for them after Pentecost when they will be hunted down and persecuted. And eventually, all but one of them will be martyred because of their love for Jesus. So he draws them to the only thing that they have to depend on in this darkness. God, who has never let them down. Jesus, who has been their light and their life, their truth, their strength, their teacher, their best friend. And he gives them a firm place to stand when those trials come. He says that he and the Father have a plan. He's going away to prepare a place for them. And a place in the presence of God, a, a, a spacious place where their trials will come to an end. And this is what I think is particularly strange because it is so, um, so tender. He says, I'm going there to prepare this place for you because I want you to be with me. Have you ever really thought about that? Jesus says, I want you to be with me. I want them to be with me where I am. It may feel at times like I'm deserting you, but don't believe that. Believe me. I am your friend. I have asked the Father to make it so that we can be together forever, and we will be. So just hang on. Just trust the Father and trust me, and you'll see. So you need to read those words again and again and be nourished by those words. Hang on. I know life can be hard, Jesus says. I've been there, but I love you. You are my friend, and I will come for you at just the right time, and I will take you to be with me where I am forever, and I will make you forget all of this pain. When you see the tenderness in Jesus' eyes, which you see in these words, then you will trust him. You'll be able to hang on in the battle, even when the temptation is most fierce, even when Potiphar's wife calls your name. And you won't just barely survive and make it through by the skin of your teeth. Knowing the love of Jesus, knowing that he 
that he wants to be with you because he likes you. Knowing all of this, you'll be able to have a strange joy and strength even, even to recover after you fall. Like I said, I'm going to skip the passage on Deuteronomy 14, but I do want to look at a couple of other verses in here. Look at Hosea uh, chapter 2. Sometimes the expressions of God's love um, aren't in the terms that are quite so tender as those from Jesus in, in, uh, in John 14. Hosea chapter 2, verse 3. I will make her, speaking of his people, I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. Skip down to verse 14. Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. Slay her with thirst. Have you ever been slain by God with thirst? Where he leaves you for a little while to your own devices while you're, you know, you've got those cracked um, uh, water pots. What, what do you call those things? Cisterns. You've got cracked cisterns. Thank you. I knew someone would know that word. And cracked brethren and cistern. <laughs> All right. When God lets you go far from him, off into the desert, just to see, yeah, you want to know what it's like to be away from me? I will slay you with thirst. But that's his love. That's his love. To, to use that then to allure you back, to speak tender, tenderly to you. Yeah, to speak tenderly to you after you have experienced that dryness and that death apart from him. He wants us to realize that he made us for himself and that we will be eternally restless until we find our rest in him, as Augustine said in his confessions. And look, last one, I think, Zephaniah chapter 3. Sometimes he expresses his love in ways that we really, we just don't even have any categories for. We, there's just simply no way to understand this as far as I'm concerned. If, if you think you can get your hands around this, let me know. Zephaniah chapter 3. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said in Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And this is the part that is... Frankly, it's very confusing. He will rejoice over you with gladness. God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God singing because of his love for us? Does anyone think that's weird? Like I said, I just don't even, I can't even begin to explain it. It's just an amazing thing that he loves us so much. Next slide. So, we know that the flesh's end, its, its goal, is to tear down the work of God in us. And I doubt that there is anything that the flesh hates more than our conscious awareness of God's love for us. So, we know that he's going to have a counteroffensive. 
If we start trying to meditate on and reflect on and, and really try to believe that God loves us, the flesh is going to be right there at your elbow. He's going to be right there with you trying to somehow overthrow that confidence in God's love. And I just want to talk about a few ways that he does that. First of all, he might make an intellectual attack. He'll attack your mind. He'll attack your thoughts. He'll try to deceive you into thinking that God does not or even could not love you. He could do this by teaching you some bad theology. Somehow convincing you that God's love depends on your love for him. Now, that might sound like a very difficult thing for the flesh to do, but it's surprisingly easy. The flesh could take some carefully chosen verses and begin to persuade you that God's love is a response to yours or that it depends on your obedience. You might take a passage from the upper room discourse that we were just reading from in John 15, verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. All right. Well, that sounds like his love depends on ours and our love is the foundation of his. It it does express express his love for us in conditional terms. And you can see how the flesh will take verses like that and begin to build in you and slowly work in you that kind of theology that says, well, I've got to love him this much before he will love me. And when you when you when you do that, you tear down the grace of God. um, And the problem becomes when you try to measure how well you have uh, the problem comes when you try to measure how well you have obeyed God, because if you're really honest with yourself. How much do you have to obey him before he does love you? You're you're really never going to be satisfied that, well, okay. I've loved him enough. And so the crack in the dam begins. And if you don't get some heavy doses of the gospel pretty soon, it's going to burst. Or if you have a different kind of personality type, the kind that tends towards self-doubt anyway and a lack of confidence, the flesh might somehow convince you that even though God in general loves his people, there's something particularly defective about you that makes it impossible for him to love you specifically. Perhaps you did something particularly wicked in your life that you think is unforgivable or you have some unthinkable thoughts that that unthinkably wicked thoughts that come into your imagination at times. And your tender conscience makes you believe that you are therefore unlovable. It might even the flesh might even succeed to the degree with you that it did with William Cooper, uh, who wrote the hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood. You know that he believed and was tormented by the belief that he was damned by a specific, by a special decree of God. To the degree that the flesh can succeed in raising doubts in my mind that God's of God's love for me, it will succeed in entangling me in all sorts of sins. A self-abasing, self-hating assumption that God couldn't love me may well be the very kind of thing that opens me up to unthinkable sin. Perhaps I even begin to believe in my miserable self-pity that, well, God couldn't love me anyway, so there's really no reason to bother with resisting against this. I might as well just enjoy what I can while I can. And that might sound ridiculous to you, but but I think some of you probably know that that it's not that hard to get into that kind of self-destructive depression. Further sins then provide more evidence to your flesh 
and to you that you really are unlovable. And you get into a kind of a death spiral that is almost impossible to pull out of. The flesh will also try to overthrow your sense of God's love for you in your affections. Depression can certainly be caused by feelings that you're not loved, but I think depression also contributes to your general feeling that there's something wrong with you, and so you can't be loved by God. Shame is a powerful emotion. It makes us feel unlovable, and that's why preachers, no offense, preachers, have, and this is not offensive, <laughs> preachers have to really stick to the gospel in all of their preaching and the fullness of the gospel and the forgiveness, the proclaim the forgiveness of sins for all kinds of sin. Pastors have to know, of course, and do know that there are people in the congregation who have committed adultery, people who have been filled with hatred in their hearts for years for their brothers and sisters. Jesus calls them murderers. There are others who struggle with temptations to homosexuality and other things that we don't even want to talk about. And if such sinners, I mean, this, this is a good question. If such sinners come and sit under your preaching or under your teaching for a month or so, Will they have a sense that there really is good news, that even these things that they think are so wicked can be forgiven by God? Or will they only feel that sting of condemnation and feel further shame? Of course, preachers have to preach conviction of sin, and that God hates this sin. But they have to preach it in such a way that turns people to repentance with the full confidence that God is the father of prodigal sons, that he does welcome us back with loving arms, no matter what the sin, no matter how horrible a sin you can imagine. God, God does have enough grace to overcome that and to demonstrate his love. He, he specializes in cleansing lepers, and I'm talking about leprous hearts that are filled with running sores. But not just preachers, of course. Parents need to do this same kind of thing with their children. We have a tremendous influence on our children in the way that we demonstrate love to them. And if we love them with a kind of love that models or teaches them that love is, is earned, that, that, it, that it depends on their behavior and so on, then, then they'll tend to think that that's what God's love is like as well. And so although we can't love them perfectly the way that God does, our love should at least be a shadow and should represent to them something of that of, of that uh, love of God for them. Next slide, please. In that movie, I pointed out in Man on Fire that um, this bodyguard named Creasy is changed by Peter's love for him. Well, in the next scenes of the movie, after he puts away his, his Jack Daniels, he begins to develop a love for her in response to her. And he begins to work with her and uses his skills and, and helps her to train for a, a swimming competition. And as he coaches her and, and he works with her, she gets to be good enough. She actually wins the swimming race. But then, of course, she is kidnapped. And much of the rest of the movie is, um, uh, follows Creasy as he learns not only is she kidnapped, but he, he is led to believe that she has been killed. And he uses then the skills that he learned as an assassin in order to pursue 
everyone that he can find who had anything to do with her abduction and her murder. Uh, and and he, uh, he's, he's very effective. He's very task-oriented, let's put it that way. And, and he's very effective in what he does. And, yeah, you probably want to fast-forward through some of that stuff. Um, but, but this is all driven by his love for her. And then later he finds out that, in fact, the girl is still alive. And in the climax of the movie, he does find his way to the big bad guy, the guy who is the source of all of this. But, but the twist is that he doesn't get to go and kill the big bad guy. And what he has to do, the only way that he can save this little girl is by making the ultimate sacrifice himself. And he gladly does that because of his love for her. He does go and he offers his life in exchange for hers. Love gives meaning to tasks. It didn't, see, I gave away the movie. But love gives meaning to tasks. It inspires and motivates tasks. It ennobles tasks, gives purpose to tasks, and it keeps tasks in their perspective. In fact, when tasks are in perspective, they are always in the service of love. They are always in the service of love. You probably came here today with a task in mind. You knew before you came that you were called to put uh, the flesh to death. And I suspect most of you would not have bothered to come here if you didn't think that that was important or if you didn't think or if you thought that it was easy. I hope I haven't led you astray and misled you into thinking that there is some kind of silver, silver bullet, some kind of regimen that you can undergo that will take care of the flesh in a single blow. Uh, I don't have any kind of formula. I don't have a pill that you can take or, or a diet or anything like that that's going to take care of the flesh for you. But I do know this, that your experiential knowledge of the love of God for you in Christ and your assurance of God's love for you is the only safe motivation, the only safe motivation for your mortification. And any other skills that you learn from fasting to prayer to meditation to analysis of the flesh's tactics of deception, all of those will only be effective to the degree that they are driven by love. And so I leave you today with this charge, with this task, that you take it upon yourself to explore every day the fullness of the depth and the height and the breadth of the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. And the more that you are just washed over by the flood, by the tide of that love, the more you will see yourself mastering the deceptions of the flesh. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, your love is amazing. It's inconceivable. It's inconceivable to think that you would rejoice over us with singing. It's inconceivable that you would give your only Son, for us sinners. Lord, I pray that you continue to work that knowledge into us deeply. Help us to believe it by faith. So that the life that we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. In his name we pray. Amen.
I'm going to invite you to sit down if you would, Chris, and uh, it's been transformed right here. No, we've been here for a while, so we're not going to have this drag out, but I do have some of your questions, and I want to work through some of those with Chris just for the next 15 minutes or so would probably be the time limit. Uh, if you want more Q&A uh, with Chris, later this afternoon I'm going to do a radio interview uh, with him and dialogue with him, and all that stuff is online usually uh, in a couple days. And so you can take advantage of those as well if you want to pick his brain a little bit. So you can ask him afterward, too, if you have other questions. If I didn't get to your questions, sorry. They may come up in the radio interview, interview or you can ask him uh, just personally afterward. Sound good? All right. We, we want to know about the mission trip first. So tell us a little bit about that, why you're going out of the country, and oh. uh, let us know a little bit more about you. All right. Um, well... Uh, it's kind of a long story. I'll try to make it quick. Um, I guess we'll get done with one question. So. <laughs> well, I was born in 19... Well, anyway. Um, At a very early age, you were born. Yeah, close in the hospital, so I could be close to my mother. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, in 1990, in uh, God's providence by different people that I knew and so on, we uh, got involved in missions in Eastern Europe. The opportunity, you know, opened up after the fall of, of, of the Berlin Wall and communism and all that stuff in 89. And so just a few months after that, in, in May of 1990, I uh, went to Prague on a short-term mission trip. And that really had a, um, quite a lasting impact on me because I saw a lot of, of great things that could be done in discipleship. And, and so I began developing teams in our church to go year after year. We went into the Czech Republic and then into uh, Romania, uh, and then after I um, left Las Cruces and moved to Dell, uh, I helped uh, our church in a, in a little bit in developing uh, a team to go into Turkey, and then uh, last couple of years my wife and I have gone to um, eastern part of the Czech Republic to do English camps. Well, so I've had all that kind of background, and I, and I had in the middle of that somewhere I had a sabbatical in Eastern Europe, so there's, this is, there's been kind of a connection with that and a love for that, um, that area. And then as I started thinking about life after Dell a few years ago and wondering if there would be life after Dell, um, uh, I started thinking about the different experiences that God had given me and, the, and whatever gifts and talents that I had. And so I, had, I have a degree in English. English is a really hot commodity in the world in, you know, countries wanting to participate in the global economy and needing English, and so English teachers are, are needed everywhere. And um, I also have this background with seminary and pastoral experience and discipling and so on. And then I have uh, this management and program management experience at Dell, which I really have learned a lot of things there that I think churches, churches can use, just some really fundamental things about administration and, and um, project leadership. So as I thought about how those things might fit into something, I thought, well, maybe this would this would help a missions team. And, and so I, I wrote, the first person I thought of was, was the guy who is the team lead of, of uh, Mission to the World's team in Trnava, Slovakia, just to ask him his opinion. And he wrote back and he said, well, believe it or not, before you even sent your email, we were praying for you. And what he was saying was, yes, exactly, those kind, those kind of skills we need. And so that started a dialogue. And and in the spring, we went to uh, Paula and our two youngest sons went over there to visit, to check them out. And they checked us out and they said, hey, come work with us. And we said, okay. And so now we're getting ready to do that. 
Great. How, how can people know more about that? How can people know more about you, for that matter? What is your website? Uh, well, you can just send me an email. And it's real easy. Chris at the-lungards.com. All right. You do have a website, though. Um, I, have a, I do have a, a blog, but I'm going to move. Uh, yeah, I'm creating a new website, though, um, which I'll move that over to, okay. thelungards.com kind of thing. Okay. But it'll be a few days before I get to that. All I've right. been working on this conference thing. We're glad. We're glad. Your arm looks a little sore from being twisted, but we are, we're so glad that you're here anyway. You have done a, uh, us a service by introducing us to John Owen in a very friendly, soft sort of way. Uh, what would you recommend to us, uh, those of us who, who like this person we've gotten close to, and now we're ready to actually meet him ourselves? Well, um, I really like The Glory of Christ. I, I think that is uh, an amazing book. If you want to read some John Owen, and really, John Owen is, um, is not a very good writer in some ways. In, um, he apparently... You heard it here. <laughs> He, no one ever taught him about uh, about you know brevity as the soul of wit and that sort of thing. So, um, but but when you read the glory of Christ, you really don't mind that it's going on and on and on and on because because it's such a beautiful reflection on Christ. But there really are some good abridgments published by Banner of Truth um, and you know about a little 150 page paperback that that uh, I think is good. But if you, if you read that, then I think you can go and read Owen himself and just get yourself a dictionary and, and, and read. All right. Well, what do you think John Owen would think of what you have done to him um, and, and y- your approach? It's been very contemporary with uh, Man on Fire and video games. And uh, What do you think? Is there another question? <laughs> I have no idea, but I'll apologize to him when I uh, when I see him. Okay. No, I'll thank I will thank him um, because I think his ideas are uh, he he just ha- understands the psychology of sin very well, uh, and and his material is so helpful. And and if if he could understand what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to make accessible his ideas to people that I know just will not bother to read his stuff. And I think if he understood that, I, I think he'd say, well, okay, all right. Go ahead. That's fine. Good. Fair enough. Uh, would you say your approach, uh, your, your theological perspective and your approach in your books is a classic Reformed approach to sanctification? And if so, uh, how does that differ from other approaches to sanctification? Um, well, uh Boy, that's an interesting question. I, w- I would say yes, that, it, that in general it's, it's a classic Reformed approach to sanctification. And it, it differs from a few others. Like It, it certainly differs from any, any kind of perfectionism because there's, there's no sense, uh, you don't get any sense from Owen that you're actually going to get to the point. I mean, he does offer the confidence that, that as you grow, I mean, I mean, there really is a sense in which Yes, you can get a, uh, grow and mature in Christ and, and, and see victory over your sin, but there's never a sense that this struggle ends in, the, in this life and that, and that it's no longer difficult. Um, so you don't, you don't have any of that sense of um, perfectionism. Uh, so it certainly differs from that. Uh, obviously differs from any kind of uh, second blessing sort of thing. 
or a multi-tiered kind of Christianity uh, with upper echelon Christians and or spirit-filled Christians or whatever they are and the ordinary rest of us who struggle with sin. Not, nothing like that. We all have the spirit. All are filled with the spirit. And that's why we struggle is because the flesh wars against the spirit. So there's no magic bullet, as you said. Right. No silver bullet, no magic okay. dust, okay. pixie dust or anything like that. Skip that one. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at the time. That's all. You oh, the headaches are gone. <laughs> Blood pressure medicine. Anyway. Okay. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Is it possible to become fixated on sin in an unhealthy way? Absolutely. Because Absolutely. You, you talked about that. The idea of looking at the sin and, and, and even focusing on it some, can that become yeah. out of balance? Absolutely, and I think I've spent a good bit of my life in, in that kind of out-of-balanceness. And I think it's a failure to understand the gospel and a failure to appreciate that God, can, like I was saying, can forgive all kinds of sin. And, and um, there is an, it is important to see how wicked sin is and, and to understand that. But if you understand the wickedness of sin without understanding the grace of God, it's just it becomes destructive and self-destructive. And so you've got to have both of those things. Yes, we want to know that sin is wicked. It really is wicked. And uh, uh, we need to hate it. We need to hate it the way that God hates it. It's not a light thing. It's not something, like I was saying, that you think, okay, well, God's going to forgive this, uh, you know. Um, but, but you really have to understand the grace, the grace that that overcomes it all. Regarding your view of Romans 7, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned Packer has a work on that. What specifically do you know what that was? Uh, his exposition of it or explanation is in a book that I don't even know if it's still in print called Keeping in Tep- Step with the Spirit or something like that. Keeping in okay. Step with the Spirit. Um, Any other resources you would recommend as far as the different views and why you hold your view and the other views? Well... Um, yeah, I don't consider myself an expert on that. I do know that, you know, if you wanted to be a name dropper, you could say, well, Augustine holds this view, Calvin holds this view, Luther holds this view, and so on. But obviously, we don't. That's not the way we figure out what the truth is. Um, you look at the expositions that these people do, and why do they come to these views? And 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 you know, as you look at the scriptures, and I think Calvin, are you looking at Calvin's commentaries and so on. Um, uh, those are very good. But there are very contemporary analyses. John Stott also has his little book on Romans 5 through 8. I can't remember what that one's called. He has a Romans commentary now. Oh, he has a full that. commentary? Yeah. Okay. So good exegetical or expositional yeah. commentaries would be helpful. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, in light of, um, this is in light of our understanding of sanctification um, as an evidence of salvation. Uh, how do you regard someone who continuously makes no progress in one specific area, even though they're clearly being conformed to the image of Christ in other areas of their life? No victory, one particular area. Yeah, I think that um, I think it's not over. I think it's not over. And there can be victory, even in that one particular area where that struggle is. It might go on for decades. And, uh, yeah, I it's not time to give up, and it doesn't show that you're not a believer because you have this struggle. Um, yeah. 
Do you have a good scripture that defines law as a system of rewards and penalties? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that. Is yeah, that, that was the, the uh, Deuteronomy one, isn't it? Is that where the Mount Ebal stuff is? I can't remember. 27, Deuteronomy 27, somewhere around there. Maybe somebody could find it. Um, uh, and then there's also, if you look in Hebrews 11, where it talks about uh, Moses um, and, and reference to his giving up the pleasures of sin. You think about the pleasures of sin that were offered to him in Egypt. You know, growing up in Pharaoh's household, um, all kinds of intellectual pleasures, having the probably the greatest knowledge available at the time in the world uh, available to him. So if you wanted intellectual stimulation, you could get that. I'm sure there were all kinds of sensual um, uh, uh Pleasures as well that would be offered in the palace of, of the Pharaoh and all of those kind of things. He, uh, those were the rewards that were offered to him if he were, would abandon God and, and follow sin. Uh, so there's, there's an illusion there. But I think that, that um, passage in, in Deuteronomy is just a good picture of, of, the way, of the way the law works. For the sake of time, we're going to be done with Q&A. A couple of things to mention to you. Chris is going to be here teaching the 9 o'clock hour tomorrow morning. Um, For the sake of pastors who I want to be my friends, um, if you go to a different church, you're not allowed to be here tomorrow at 9 o'clock. I go to a different church. Well, you're you're the exception. But anyhow, all of that to say, we would encourage you to be at the church where you normally are. Uh, unless it's a bad church, then please come. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're shameless recruiters. Anyway, <laughs> all of that to say, everything's online anyway. Uh, it will be uh, sometime next week. And so take advantage of that. I would encourage you to, to listen to that. Listen to the radio Q&A as well, just to l- learn a little bit more and uh, be influenced as well. Hopefully you all received a card like this. 2007 conferences and events at Omaha Bible Church. Next year, this conference will be with Don Whitney, uh, and it will be called something like Simplifying Your Spiritual Life. He's written a book along those lines. Uh, Don is a friend. He's been here before. Uh, has written some very helpful books on spiritual disciplines, so we're very glad he is coming. Uh, there's also a women's conference coming up with Carol Ruvalo, uh, and you can see that on there as well. Bill Shannon is coming on discipleship for the men's breakfast, and then Byron Yon who pastors Community Bible Church in Nashville, will be here in the spring for us men as well. So uh, take advantage. Here at Omaha Bible Church, we like to say uh, these aren't our events. They aren't our conferences or breakfasts or whatever. We like to host them. And so uh, please take advantage of them, even if you're from somewhere else. Uh, we would love to have you be a part of them. We're so thankful for the opportunity that God gives us. And, and we, as a church body, love to serve the rest of you. So thank you so much. Uh, Chris told me last night he doesn't do a lot of public speaking. Uh, he wanted some feedback from all of you. Um, let's give him some feedback and thank him for coming. pray. Father, thank you so much for today. It's been a, a great day for us. It's, uh, I don't know what has been best. It's been great to be able to spend time over lunch uh, getting to know people. It's been great just hanging out at the bookstore and um, finding encouragement, talking about the things that matter most, the things that matter to you. Uh, most importantly, your son and his great and magnificent work that he has done on our behalf. 
And we rejoice in these things. And we are so thankful as well for the power of the gospel uh, to forgive us of all of our sins. And we're thankful for the sustaining grace that we find in Christ as well that we've been hearing about and learning about from our new friend, uh, Chris Lemgard. Thank you so much for him. Thank you for what you've done in his life. And we would ask for your special and unique encouragement in his life and in the life of his family as they prepare to go and do ministry uh, somewhere else. Give them great encouragement and uh, give them great opportunities to depend upon you and to reflect Christ as they go. Thank you so much for being the gracious and loving Heavenly Father that you are and that you've shown yourself to be today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for coming. Have a great afternoon and evening. Thank you.